Can't get Saints Steelers. I'll take Vikings yeah. Patriots. I was excited for Breeze Patriots probably, but this is I think it's an exciting matchup. So I guess we both agree here: Patriots and Vikings to meet in the Super Bowl, and that should do it. A reminder to tune into our coverage, which is already airing right now. You can go to YouTube, search WCBN or WCBNSports.org to catch our coverage of Maryland and Michigan and men's basketball. And as always, we wish you a good day and a go blue. It's about 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Uh, yeah, it's MLK week here at the University of Michigan. I actually went to a little talk this afternoon at the Union about MLK and militarism. So we won't talk too much about that, but uh, it's very interesting. And, of course, the main um, idea that came came out of this uh, talk, this was sponsored by the the veterans, um, a veterans group here uh, in in Michigan that operates and does public affairs events from time to time on campus— talks about the uh, relevance and reality of militarism around the world. And while, of course, many of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's ideas are focused on civil rights, racism, and those problems, this symposium was more about the connection between racism, socioeconomic poverty, and militarism and the problems of militarism. And just as a teaser, I'm not going to talk about the Martin Luther King assassination tonight, but uh, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary is coming up in uh, several months, early uh, April is in fact the unfortunate date of that event. Today is actually Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, He would have been 89 today. Uh, He was born on the 15th of January. So um, he, <laughs> if he hadn't been assassinated, he might still be alive today. 
Anyway, this uh, linkage between uh, the wars in uh, Vietnam at the time that changed Martin Luther King's sort of public agenda um, after the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, Martin Luther King began to focus more on economic issues and uh, the problems of the war in Vietnam. Nonviolence, of course, is the key message here. Uh, Martin Luther King was an adherence of nonviolence, nonviolence in terms of protesting uh, here at home, and uh, nonviolence in terms of protesting the policy in Indochina. And I say Indochina because a lot of people uh, forget that uh, in in uh, even during Martin Luther King's life, we were secretly bombing Laos uh, from Thailand. And uh, Nixon, Richard Nixon, of course, started a secret war in Cambodia uh, when he became president. So these wars are technically are called the Vietnam War, but they really were the Indochina War. And while our troops were primarily stationed in South Vietnam, we were propping up the regime there. Um, the, uh, the war was much broader than that. And it's remarkable, by the way, that the war in Laos could remain secret for almost seven years. Now, it wasn't completely secret. There were a lot of French journalists uh, that were actually reporting on the damage that the bombing was doing uh, in Laos, the so-called Plain of Jars. And one of the m most important messages from uh, today's uh, symposium, I guess that's a good way to describe it, was that um, one of Dr. King's key uh, talking points, I guess is kind of a modern version of what we call this, was that the bombing must stop, that there must be a ceasefire, that America needs to stop the bombing in Indochina and uh, adhere to the principles of nonviolence. In connection with that, by the way, uh, Jim just walked in, so we'll give him a second to catch his breath. It's a little snowy out there, so you gotta, you're at the mercy of the driving public. I did want to mention, uh, by the way, that I heard a really interesting interview on On the Media, which is uh, an NPR syndicated show that can be heard on WUOM on Sunday nights at 7 p.m., but it's probably a podcast and on the Internet at this point, on the media. It's out of the New York uh, public radio system. There's an interview uh, with Leslie Gelb. Who is Leslie Gelb, you ask? Well, he's the man that actually wrote the Pentagon Papers, assembled the uh, Pentagon Papers, I guess is more accurate. He was instructed by McNamara. Uh, at one point, to come up with answers to questions that that Gelb humorously says, "Why are we doing this? This is this is what the press secretary is supposed to be doing." So he organized. Uh, he was called the director of policy planning. He essentially organized the intellectual analysis of the what became the Pentagon Papers, and as he points out in the interview. One of the problems is nobody's read them. They talk about them. Ellsberg talks about them. Nobody's actually read them. 
And what he talks about not only are the lies that he admits were happening and that were were ongoing uh, from the administration of Lyndon Johnson and then later with Richard Nixon, was the problem was the belief system. It was the idea that we could win the war. It was the idea that the domino theory was sound. And one of his more insightful observations was that when Clark Clifford took over as defense secretary in 1968, uh, right around the time of the Tet Offensive, he went over to the Pentagon and said, well, I've been against the war since 65. We, we, were, we, were, we asked the countries, the dominoes, if they wanted to contribute troops to the war, and they all said no. So if they said no, what on earth are we doing in Vietnam? <laughs> this was Clark Clifford, who, of course, was uh, a chief of staff for Harry S. Truman, a longtime sort of Democratic lobbying operative type who replaced McNamara after he was essentially uh, kicked upstairs into the World Bank and had be become disillusioned by the Vietnam War. So that the it was this failure of policy, and as Gelb points out, that the ultimate problem was that the United States didn't understand the culture, the history, the religion. They didn't know anything about Indochina. Nobody in the government did. And that this mistake has been repeated in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and unfortunately Donald Trump, in his infinite uh, stupidity, um, it has, does seem uh, boundless. It does seem boundless, despite the fact that he has assured us that he's a stable genius. He's, and the least racist guy you'll ever interview. Yeah, in your life, in, your, in, the, history, in the history of civilization. That's right. He's always putting himself uh, on top of the whole dog pile. Trump, of course, has gone from the, the stable... Uh, he he went was in the White House. He went to the stables. I think Melania put him in the doghouse, and now he's in the outhouse. <laughs> and we'll leave it. At well, that. we'll loop back to that. And uh, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but there's an interesting moment in uh, the new film uh, called The Post. Oh yes, about this. I haven't seen it yet. This, I saw it just last night. Ah, okay, cool. Um, where Catherine Graham is. Uh, who knew McNamara personally sure. as a family friend, friend of her husband. Yeah. Uh, and there's some commentary about, hmm, maybe we have been used. Uh, ben Bradley at one point uh, confesses an awkward moment. Jack Kennedy, who he liked as a friend, uh, in retrospect, uh, begins to see that, well, it was a friendly relationship, but there were ways in which he used me and my position as a editor, a journalist, to sort of protect secrets or to float certain agenda-type stories. Uh, and this moment where Catherine Graham sort of confronts Robert McNamara privately, personally, sure. about this very matter. He, uh, she had a son who'd gone and done a tour of service and had come back. Uh, but uh, McNamara, as the film depicts this scene... Uh, 
tries to argue that, well, these documents can't be released now because these are for posterity. These are for historical analysis. Sure. Uh, it's harmful to the United States to release them now because the war is still ongoing. But of course, what the shocking truth of the Pentagon Papers was, was that all the experts agreed it's unwinnable. We're there for the wrong reasons. Uh, it's never going to answer the cost. The political cost at home is uh, increasing. Uh, but it was the idea of saving face. Can't, yeah. can't lose uh, the war. Uh, it'll look bad for me. And of and, course, and of course by as, Nixon's time, it was completely unwinnable. Completely unwinnable because, of course, one of the key turning points in public opinion opposition to the war was Walter Cronkite's famous uh, trip to Vietnam in early 68 after the Tet Offensive. Which was April, I believe. Uh, March or April? Some Yeah, well, he, early 68. he reported early, I think it might have been uh, late February, early March. That's a date that you can look that up. But that's the date when Cronkite pretty much reported uh, to the American people that the war was unwinnable. And he didn't, of course, question the fundamental idea that we that the, that war is winnable. Uh, the United States mindset after the Second World War, of course, was that we could, uh, to paraphrase John F. Kennedy, pay any price, bear any burden in pursuit of freedom and all that stuff. Now, John F. Kennedy's eloquent uh, words were generally written by Theodore Sorensen, and I do think that it's important. Uh, as always, to distinguish between the policies in Indochina of Dwight Eisenhower, Harry Truman, and John F. Kennedy that were very different from Lyndon Johnson. Uh, one of the most revealing things in the Gelb interview, by the way, is the fact that he looked at the, quote, negatives of the Gulf of Tonkin and knew that the government was completely lying about the whole thing, that there were no shots being fired by North Vietnamese boats in the Gulf of Tonkin, that it was actually the American uh, Navy that was uh, doing all the firing. And then, of course, misreporting uh, to the United States uh, civilian establishment what really happened, that there were hidden objectives in going into Vietnam. It's quite well established, for instance, that Lyndon Johnson... Uh, was very interested in, <clears throat> quote, jobs, unquote, in Texas. They made a lot of the equipment for the Vietnam War. There were complaints about the equipment, in fact. Yeah, the M-16 was notorious for jamming. Yeah, and of course the North Vietnamese were using AK-47s developed by the Soviet Union. Still widely used. Used all over the globe, yeah. pretty much acknowledged as the best uh, rifle for that kind of stuff. Um, but it it was the delusions, the deception, the continuing belief, as uh, Gelb points out, the deluded belief that we could win, that if we just twisted some knobs over here and threw some more troops over there, that this would somehow turn out. And, of course, McNamara's obsession with quantifying data yeah. um, was something we can analyze the data and we can do better. But it's he came from the automotive industry. It's not a production line. Sure. It's a very murky situation with no 
hard and fast lines. I mean, in World War II, in that sort of conventional combat, you have a battle, you secure territory, you advance and move forward and secure the next patch. But Vietnam didn't work that way. There was nothing to hold on to. Nothing to hold on to. And of course, McNamara became actually persuaded quite early that there were problems, that, that these bombing missions were not working uh, quite as effectively as it was being portrayed to the American public because the bombing, of course, was just one component of this uh, insane war. Uh, it eventually, under Johnson, led to massive uh, inflows of ground troops starting in 1965. And to the University of Michigan's credit, by the way, the, the first teach-on against the war um, was in March of '65. After uh, Lyndon Johnson began dispatching ground troops, one of the famous incidents of the Vietnam War, there, of course, were so many, but McGeorge Bundy went to uh, a base called Pleiku uh, that was was attacked by the Viet Cong. Ten people died or whatever, and he then began writing memos advocating... uh, we have to make a stand. We have to reassure our allies that, as Gelb put it so perfectly, there was this mindset in Washington that Vietnam was, quote, Berlin. That mm. This was like the, the Berlin airlift in 1948. Um, and then another smaller airlift in, in 61 when the actual wall was put up by not the Soviets, but by the East Germans. Uh, Reagan got that fact wrong, and the media repeats that. And it's I mean mythology the, over and over. Turn right. down that and, wall. And, you know, in in some ways, we're still fighting the Vietnam War. Yes, we are. Uh, intellectually, ideologically, and to me, one of the numerous tragedies that you know, obviously, Martin Luther King's assassination sure. is partly connected to his. Uh, increasing uh, willingness to speak openly against the war. But one of the great tragedies of that uh, ill-considered venture was that it squandered the capital that America had earned with, you know, the blood of our soldiers in World War II as being we're liberators. We uh, help local people throw off the shackles of oppression in Vietnam. We were helping prop up a hugely unpopular and vastly corrupt government uh, in the face of a local popular movement who we had ideological problems with. Uh, So it was just mistaken at every possible juncture. And unfortunately, it was more like the problems that the United States had in the Philippines uh, earlier in the 20th century. We're not dealing with Western westernized powers that had, quote, targets. You know, Donald Rumsfeld famously said about the war in Afghanistan, there aren't any good targets. <laughs> well, that's a reference to America's overbelief in the power of air power. Uh, there's no question that America is the number one air power, hands down. Nobody can touch us, as they say. Led to the great joke in The Onion that Rumsfeld plans to bomb Afghanistan up to the Stone Age. Yeah, up to. And that's the problem, is that these uh, idea, these ideas of war have failed. Uh, you know, I did earlier this year 
I guess technically I should say last year, because it was last year, did read the uh, the book by R.H. McMaster about oh. the Vietnam War. He was a he wrote a very well regarded paper about the failure uh, in Indochina, and of course he doesn't blame the military; he blames Washington, the civilians, and the the war in Washington. But he does not blame the media, which is very interesting because that's that became a Republican canard, a canard. And of course, we saw just last week Donald Trump making unbelievable um, claims about changing the libel laws. I'm not being treated fairly, he claimed. Well, this guy's got. Well, his old buddies, the Wall Street Journal, uh, spilled the beans on the hush money to the porn star. So, Stormy he's, Daniels. He's, he's a little little frustrated. He's more than a little frustrated. He's in the outhouse now. Um, and there, there was something very peculiar about last week that I think will have to remain a mystery for quite some time. On Tuesday, Donald Trump met with Congress. He had a public... One of these kind of what we call show, showboat It was very much sessions. a, hey, welcome to the show. Right. Uh, this is the way my reality TV presidency <laughs> really works. Look at me be conciliatory. Conciliatory. And gracious. Even, uh, gracious. Let's, let's work on a bill of love. That's what he said. And he even said, I'll take the heat for, for, for DACA. I just want to sign a bill. And then between Tuesday... In the morning when he met with the congressional leaders, in fact, ironically, there's there's a picture of Richard Durbin on his right. Yeah. Um, McSally is over here on next to Durbin. And then you can see John Tester, uh, the crew cut senator from Montana over here. This appears to be uh, Mr. McCarthy. And that appears to be Steny Hoyer. Trump sitting there like this. Arms folded. Grimacing. And this is the day when he says, I'll take the heat. And, you know, but then, some in the media began to want, well, you know, uh, is this a new phase? Is this like uh, he's he's going to play, you know, the game and yeah. play ball here uh, in deep in my gut? I was like, no way. Yeah. The, the, the other shoe will drop in a day or two. It's the happy Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> it's the Donald Trump after preparation age. He's very happy. And I don't know whether it was Bannon getting canned, but the remarkable similarity between what happened last week and what happened in the week following Charlottesville. You got to look this up, folks. This is incredible. That's when Bannon was the fall guy. That's how Trump got out of his disastrous comments that he made about Charlottesville. The both sides now. I don't know if he's been singing Joni Mitchell's version or uh there's fine folks on both sides now maybe the judy collins version yeah so it's a little better in my opinion but yeah it was strange that bannon you know takes the complete fall tuesday night and is is uh ousted or Breitbart, res yeah. resigns it's a little unclear which well he'll be testifying tomorrow so that stay tuned so, yeah, there was something that happened between Tuesday and Thursday where Trump just changed. 
And I don't know what it was. There's the infamous photograph of him uh, with uh, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, the rear admiral of the Navy, who's going to give the president his physical on Friday. And there's Trump. It's kind of got a side shot of him. And he looks remarkably like Sidney Greenstreet. (laughs) Yeah, and apparently there's some weirdness involving. We, we'll hear the official report from the doctor tomorrow, the extent to which he's been told, you know, this amount of information can be shared and no more. But And what's with the flags being covered up? Well, it's uh, Trump <laughs> needs charts and diagrams to understand uh, complex uh, issues and ideas. And so these medical charts are just sort of it's a PowerPoint presentation and cardboard form. I mean, the, the American flag is being covered up and then there's an odd flag. <laughs> Two flags down. Is is that like a white nationalist flag? It's, it's exceedingly strange. Oh, I think it's it's uh, the Air Force flag because this Possibly. doctor yeah. is a United States Air Force physician. So, yeah. Who, who knows? Well, um, apparently the, the, the was being reported on MSNBC on Friday that uh, we haven't officially heard from the doctor yet, but on White House letterhead, a statement was issued saying the president's in excellent health. He's sure. practically a perfect specimen. We'll tell you more on Tuesday. Signed, Ronnie Jackson, but they spelled Ronnie wrong. So I, I doubt that the doctor misspelled his own name. So think is ho- this a uh, my son can't take this quiz because the dog ate his homework signed Donnie's mom. Yeah, well, think ho- of a note. Hope Hicks or Kellyanne Conway probably wrote that up. Uh, that's been a very common thing. And then, of course, there was an exceedingly embarrassing uh, story on Wednesday about Donald Trump's um, relationship to the coal industry. How Cole's Barron's wish list became Trump's to-do list. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's not a pretty picture. It's basically about the, uh, <clears throat> the head of Murray Energy uh, writing up the, the talking points for, for, and writing uh, you know the memo that is behind the Donald Trump uh, coal uh, policy. Maybe it was the foreign trade deficit. <laughs> Turns out it set an all-time record in 2017. I don't know what it was that set Trump off, but something did. Well, uh, South Korea started talking with North Korea. That Olympics, may have been yeah. annoyance, too. He got upstaged. He couldn't take credit for anything because, my goodness, they were talking about the Olympics. Hey, well, I don't care. It's That's great if that's what it takes to get the... Uh, Negotiations started. Wonderful. Uh, maybe it was the Europeans uh, denouncing his Iran policy. Who knows? <laughs> Inquiring minds should know because uh, Trump, of course, uh, by Thursday, just two days, 48 hours, he's taken a complete reversal on the DACA. And then mm-hmm. he's over the weekend blaming the Democrats if the DACA bill doesn't go through the Republican Congress. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's ridiculous. By all accounts, 
Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin had come to present, hey, we've arrived at a compromise. We have it. And this is a, this a is good it. way to work uh, this you know, little situation out. And as far as immigration is concerned, DACA is kind of a no-brainer. It's, it's a pretty easy fix. And there are many other complex issues that can be considered later, but... Uh, so he was presented with uh, a no-brainer, yeah. but he has no brain, of course. So, um, although you know, part of the Tuesday, hey, this is the competent, happy Trump show. Um, one theory on that um, actual, you know, sort of moment of cohesion uh, is that well, this book has people talking about uh, people think I'm crazy, people think I'm incompetent, people think I'm a nut. I'll show them, you know how well-behaved and how functional I can be. So maybe he's not crazy. Maybe he's just a complete a-hole. Maybe he's just that big of a jerk. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, we would like to remind you that you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Uh, fascinating weather map. In Sunday's paper showing the temperature increase from normal in the United States, the lower 48, as well as the precipitation. What is striking to me about this map, by the way, you know, we'll leave aside the 10 cities they focus on on the bottom. But the areas that were, were three degrees or hotter all coincide with major urban areas in the United States. I just want to read a few of these. Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, Tucson. El Paso, El Paso, Texas, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Dallas, Fort Worth, Des Moines, Iowa, Omaha, Milwaukee, uh, Cleveland, Pittsburgh. There's this weird little sliver of propinquity there, uh, even though they're rivals in football. Nashville, Tennessee. How about Columbia, South Carolina, up to Charlotte and uh, Raleigh? Fascinating. Do humans cause global warming or climate change? Of course they do. That's where the heat islands are. They're in the urban cities. It's the air conditioning. It's the traffic. It's you name it. Well, I'm not finding it here amongst my uh, clippings, but the Times also printed a, a one-page list of the uh, the total cost of the devastating storms. <clears throat> sure. Um, all examples of extreme weather, some of them more extreme than we've seen storms before. Three major extreme hurricanes this year, winter storms. The, the costs are staggering. $300 billion plus. Yeah. And, and, we're, and we're giving out tax cuts. And this is a trend that we can probably count on seeing uh, grow. Sure. Well, we are out of time down here. We'd like to thank Andrew for engineering once again here on Gray Matters. You are listening to WCBN-FM. Ann Arbor. Stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling is coming up next. We got Mick up at uh, 8 o'clock with Groovasaurus, and the Cool Cats are up at 10. Uh, Rodney and uh, Frank Uley rotate uh, every Monday at 10. Good night to listen to W. Very much so. CBN. Good night. Give beauty a chance for a change instead of these other things, you know? The world tried everything. Everybody's been free, really, to uh, to do things and be supported by the public, like pornography and all these things supported by the public. And the public has no right to complain if they have a bad world, because they need to support something decent, something harmonious, and something beautiful. And they'll get, in return, from the cosmos, 
they will get it. I mean, it might come from God, it might come from the devil, it might come from anywhere, but I'm sure all the superior beings would appreciate it greatly if humanity would turn around and do something beautiful. Thursdays from 9 a.m. until noon on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I was sensitive to 